You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 35 West Shelton Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. As I mentioned earlier, I spent some time between Christmas and New Year's with family. Um, Steve's family and then my family. I am one of four kids. There were two girls and two boys. Uh, I'm the second oldest. So the four of my siblings got together and all of our kids. Um, And we also spent time with my extended family. And um, I don't know, do you have someone in your family who's like a good historian? They remember things that have happened. They can like tell you, no. See, I'm that way too. I am not that person. Of my siblings, I'm usually the one that doesn't remember and I have to say, wait, what happened? Or like, I vaguely remember this and they have to fill in the details for me. Um, I was feeling curious myself about things that have happened in my extended family. Uh, So when we were gathered, I just started asking questions and sharing what little snippets of things I remember. And I learned more about my great-grandmother's story um, through my Uncle Craig than I have ever knew before. You know, there are stories and defining moments in uh, every family that sometimes get told and retold and sometimes don't get spoken about at all. Um, I'm not going to share too many details about my grandma's story at this moment, except to say that her husband was tragically killed when my grandma, my dad's mom, was seven years old. So her, she lost her husband um, suddenly, tragically, and that loss had a ripple effect uh, on the rest of her life, of course, and on my grandmother's life, and my dad's, and mine, in ways that I was not even aware of. So when my grandma grew up, she was seven years old when that happened. When she grew up and got married, her mom, my great-grandma, came to live with her and their eight children. So my dad grew up with his grandma in their home for over a decade, but I never knew that. That was never mentioned, at least that I could recall. Um, And looking back, my memory of my great-grandma and my grandma, and even my dad, all look a little differently knowing that. Knowing that that tragic loss happened, illuminated this defining moment in my family's history. And it got me curious about the impact and the ripples uh, of how that, you know, affects me or influences me. Knowing what happened can change how we see our history, how we view what's happening in the present, and even um, how we make choices and live into the future. A friend in my cell was reflecting this week how currently caring for a loved one with a progressive debilitating disease is a defining experience that's changing. It's changing how she sees her history with this loved one. It impacts what's happening right now, and no doubt it will shape 
um, her choices in the future. These kind of defining moments and experiences, they don't have to be negative or tragic, of course. They can be profoundly beautiful and good, too. I have no conscious, um, I had no conscious recollection of my grandma on my mom's side having houseplants, for example. Anyone who knows me knows that I love houseplants. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised going through old photos when I found one with my grandma sitting in her living room and her whole front window full of houseplants on stands, like almost like in triangles. And I all, then I remembered being a little child sitting underneath those plants in the sunlight. Um, so there's lots of moments, big and small, that shape us. And my point is that knowing these family stories can help us see who we are. They help us make conscious choices about how we want to show up in our families and in the world. The baptism of Jesus is one of these defining moments. It shows us who our brother Jesus really is. The kids were just singing um, last week, Jesus, our brother, kind and good. If we think of ourselves as being part of um, the great family, it profoundly, Jesus' baptism profound, is profoundly good and beautiful, and it changed everything. Not just for Jesus, but for all who come after him. So you can think of it as a family moment that ripples out. And as we consider the significance of it, it changes how we see what's happening right now and how, even how we live into the future. The gospel writer of the book of Matthew um, puts Jesus in the context of his family line right at the beginning and all the stories that have come before him. In chapter one of the book of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree, and Jesus' birth. And then in chapter two, the Magi come to worship the child king, this manifestation of God in the world. And then in chapter three is the baptism of Jesus. Who Jesus is is revealed at his baptism. This is a defining moment in his life that begins his public ministry. And like I said before, it impacts everything else that will happen. And this defining moment happens in a context. So the writer of Matthew gives us enough detail in those first two chapters to um, understand that there is a murderous ruler in Jerusalem, King Herod, who we sang about in that song. Um, and he, he had the title King of the Jews, but he's appointed by the Roman Empire um, to rule over Judea. Um, and he was so evil that after Jesus is born, the Holy Family has to escape at night. They run away as refugees to a foreign land of Egypt because Herod is sent soldiers to kill all of 
the, the uh, children, the baby boys in Bethlehem and surrounding territory. When he got word that there was a new king, he wanted to eliminate any potential threat to his throne. Eventually, after Herod dies, they return and they settle in the area of Galilee in a city called Nazareth. But that's all we have from the beginning of Jesus' life. And then Matthew jumps right to the baptism. John the Baptist um, is out by the Jordan River. He comes on the scene in chapter 3. He's saying, get ready, the kingdom of heaven here, here comes the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is an adult at this time. Um, and so, and, excuse me, let me just go back for a second. When John is saying, here is the kingdom of heaven, in Greek, the word kingdom that is used is the word that they use to talk about the Roman Empire. So the original readers of Matthew uh, would recognize the contrast that Matthew's making between the kingdom of the world that they live under, the Roman Empire, and the kingdom of heaven. So right after King Herod slaughters the innocent children, um, Matthew brings us to the adult Jesus and John the Baptist saying, here comes the kingdom of heaven. We talked about John the Baptist in this very same passage just a few weeks ago in Advent. Um, but we're back here in the narrative lectionary um, on Epiphany with a focus on Jesus' baptism. Because again, Jesus is being made, is, is manifested here. He is being revealed to the world in a new way. John is baptizing lots of people. He's calling everyone to baptism of repentance to prepare the way for the kingdom of heaven. That's his message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and be baptized. And Jesus shows up to be baptized too. So let me read to you. I'm sorry, I don't have a slide today. If you want to follow along, I'm reading from Matthew 3, 13 through 17. And this is the CEB translation. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River, so John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? Jesus answered, allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. As Jesus came up out of the Jordan, heaven opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God come down to rest on him. In this moment, where every, this defining moment, the veil between heaven and earth is pulled back. Heaven opens. Everything shifts. 
the baptism of Jesus begins or inaugurates something different. The time has changed. Heaven has drawn near. It's not far off, it's not removed, it's not just some future thing. This is a present reality that the kingdom of heaven is here. But of course the empire of Rome is also still present and still rules. Both are here. Both John and Jesus in their ministry are presenting this, this um, and embodying this choice between an empire that's located in heaven and one that's located in Rome. And the people have to make choices. Already we see in the Gospel of Matthew the contrast between the two. The minute there was a word that a new king had come, Herod, and the empire, the power of the empire was threatened. So John the baptizer is calling people to change their hearts and lives, to, to turn around. It's not just a ritual cleansing that's happening in the water. It's it, the, the, the word repentance means an active turning of your life. It's like a reorientation to the way that you live. It's not just internal or introspective. It is about action and results. And Jesus himself is baptized. He says to fulfill all righteousness. But he was without sin. He didn't need to confess and repent. So why is it that Jesus is baptized? I think he is demonstrating for us that turning. Presumably up until now, he's been living as, along with everyone else, as a citizen under the Roman Empire, which again, is the rule of the day. His baptism marks this change. He's turning to demonstrate that the kingdom of God is here and he is living in that way. Unbound by the empire. And what is going to come is uh, perceived as a threat to the Roman Empire. Within a year of his baptism, Jesus is going to be executed by the state. So something is profoundly shifting for Jesus. As he enters his ministry, this turning point defines everything that's going to come after. His public ministry is beginning, and um, as people encounter him and what he is doing, it presents a threat. And John was calling people to prepare the way for that, to, to prepare themselves for that, to confess their sins, which is, means like the wrong ways of living in the world. It's not just like thinking, it's not an internal sin, um, like personal sins. It really was seen as like a way of living. Um, they were living their life according to the way of the Roman Empire, and baptism marked a turning from one way to another. So the question is, what is that way? What is the way of the kingdom of heaven that John is proclaiming? Jesus would go on and teach a lot about the kingdom of heaven, but at least in that moment, Jewish people knew the Torah. They knew... Uh, and they had a model of what the kingdom of heaven looked like. In Micah 6, 8, 
Micah says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So even for the religious leaders that were coming to John for, for baptism, John was calling them to a true repentance, a changed heart and life that would reflect this way of the kingdom of heaven. He told them, the rituals don't work. Your family line isn't enough to save you. This, or, or to um, keep you in good standing with God. This defining moment of baptism has a ripple effect in your life when it results in action and a new way of living. Jesus demonstrated this transition for them and for us. I think the ways of the empire are just the waters that we swim in and that Jesus himself swam in. They're not the way of God. They're not the way that God wants the kingdom of heaven to work. Um, we get swept along in the current, and the waters of baptism m mark a turning to resist that. It's a, uh, baptism is, is an opportunity to remember that we make intentional choices to abandon or to actively refuse the ways of the empire. Living as people of baptism uh, is about remembering the story that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not far off, it's not removed, it's a present reality. And again, both are present. So we're constantly faced with choices of how are we going to live? My cell was just reflecting this week on all the ways that, um, the ways of death and violence that are evident around us. In the case of uh, cruel illnesses, debilitating illness, in the ways of tragedy and suffering that show up in um, the emergency room, in hospitals every day. Uh, in the ways that our families and loved ones are suffering and in anguish. Um, to live as though the kingdom of heaven is near takes a lot of consciousness that is cultivated when we are surrounded by so much struggle and we experience it ourselves. We have to remember what story and how the stories shape us. That's the significance of Jesus' baptism. Jesus is filled up in that moment with all the love and the tenderness of God, which he needs to take him through the difficult things ahead. He will be repeatedly set up by those who want to trap him. He will be misunderstood and falsely accused by friends, and authorities. He will be denied and betrayed. He will keep choosing 
to keep going regardless of unjust suffering and pain in his physical body, and then a shameful and torturous death. Jesus' baptism reveals who he really is as the beloved of God, and it marks a new time that has come for him and for all of those who go after him and follow. The kingdom of heaven is near. May we be people who cultivate a consciousness of that and recognize it. I found myself practicing this week when I encountered something that felt like the mercy of God, when I encountered humility and love in those around me. I just kept practicing saying, the kingdom of heaven is near. Naming it helps me see it even more. And it takes practice. Jesus' followers are called to choose over and over again to see the kingdom of heaven is near and to live that way as people of the kingdom of heaven. These ways challenge the empire. They demonstrate the way of love that's marked by mercy and justice and humility. In this way, we can live into our own baptism. It's about, it's a defining moment for action and for belovedness. They go together. I want to close with this quote from Richard Rohr. Um, In his Center for Action and Contemplation, he writes a lot about how these two go together, belovedness and action. He writes in the Activist's Guide to Contemplation, he says, That's one reason why religion is in such desperate straits today. It isn't really transforming people. It's merely giving people some pious or religious ways to again be in charge or in control. Mature, authentic spirituality calls us into experiences and teachings that open us up to an actual transformation of consciousness, like in Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Rohr goes on to say, I think some form of contemplative practice is necessary to be able to detach from our own agendas, your own anger, your own ego, and your own fear. We need to practice some practice that touches our unconscious conditioning where all our wounds and defenses, defensive mechanisms lie. That's the only way we can be changed at any significant or lasting level. To be truly prophetic people, we have to integrate action with a contemplative mind and heart that is present to the kingdom of heaven consciousness, not just using the same tools and patterns that the world has provided. The challenge is to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus, transform us, that we can live out of our belovedness and into action. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, 
visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.